IBM's world-famous sales club, its 100% club. The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Thursday, August 24th, 2017. I'm Gabby Del Valle. Today on The Dispatch. Rollin Bishop assures me that artificial intelligence is not taking over the world. The problem is, is that no one had predicted that this would happen so soon. And Anne Derek Gayo examines the long, complicated history between Jewish and Black Americans. There's still tension over this issue of how white privilege separates both groups and their experiences. Here's the dispatch. The future. When DeepMind's AI AlphaGo first defeated the Go champion Fan Hui in 2015, it was a huge deal. But the thought was that an AI beating a Go master unassisted wasn't supposed to happen until around 2026. Rollin Bishop wanted to find out why it happened so much faster than expected and what happens when AI gets good so quickly. Hey, Rollin. Hi, Gabby. So what makes this game so complex? So Go is a two-player game, traditionally, on a board that's like 19 lines by 19, and players take turns putting a black or a white stone in positions on that board. And the number of possible positions uh, makes it really, really complex. Researchers and scientists believe that it was about a decade away before there would be another breakthrough to actually have AI beat a Go master. And that was actually part of the original paper that introduced the world to AlphaGo. One of the sources for that paper and that uh, claim is actually Jonathan Schaefer. He's the dean of the Faculty of Science, University of Alberta. He is the guy that solved checkers. Like he's been very involved in machine learning, AI. The two fundamental components in, well, really any AI system is is search and knowledge. And I went to him to try and understand exactly why this took less time than had been predicted. Uh, to be honest, I don't think they expected um, that it would produce such outstanding performance. But I don't fully understand why it plays as well as it does. And so at the high level, I understand everything that's going on. But the, again, the devil is in the details and many of the, the things that... Um, uh, are not at the highest level, are actually extremely important. If the researchers don't know why this happened, does that mean that they, that AI is like somehow getting out of their control? Is that a weird question to ask? Is that... <laughs> so let me be clear. They, they know how AlphaGo did what it did. AlphaGo combined two previously existing technologies to tackle Go in a way that it had not been done before. The problem is, is that no one had predicted that this would happen so soon because we don't we don't really totally understand what it's doing. That's really scary. Um, OK, so do you think that people are underusing AIs given that or underestimating their capabilities? The way I, th I look at it and, you know, from reporting on this, my understanding is I compare these machine learnings and these AIs to sort of like a calculator. It's another tool that we can use to quickly get from one point to another and have an easier time. But it's not necessarily that it's being underused so much as we don't fully understand how to use it in the best way. Let me give you an example. 
One of the researchers I spoke with talked about a AI going through and learning about photos. And it was designed to determine whether there was a dog in the photo. So it goes through this data and it's doing pretty well. It's it's determining that, you know, here's these dogs, they're in these photos. It does about a 96% accurate rating of these photos. Problem is, they then start using other dog photos, and it does really, really bad, and they don't understand why. Except they later find out that the first photos that they had given the AI to learn from all had snow in the background of every photo with a dog. So instead of determining, oh, here's a dog, it was going, (laughs) oh, here's snow, and going, yes to dog. So if I am a researcher on the AlphaGo team, and I'm suddenly super ahead of schedule because my AI basically beat this game, how should I use the next decade? That is an excellent question. Working on other games would be my guess. Uh, some of the researchers I spoke with you know, talked about games where not all the information is on the board. Uh, basically, poker and those sort of games where some information is held from the AI so it doesn't know everything about the board. Um, games like StarCraft, video games, where it's much more uh, swift that these actions have to be taken, and there's a lot more complex variables in addition to uh, hidden information. That's sort of the next tier. Why games and not something else? It's meant to hone these algorithms, right? If, if we, let's say we jump immediately to like climate science, That has some pretty significant ramifications based on what the neural networks churn out. But if we're just talking StarCraft, all we're talking about really is how well a computer can play the game StarCraft. So the the stakes are not as large. So sort of baby steps up to that sort of thing. From the Women's March to the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, this year has brought divisions between Black and Jewish Americans into stark relief. But the two groups have a long and complicated history together. Anne Derek Gayo is here to talk about that. Hi, Anne. Hi, Gabby. Why did you decide to write about this now? Well, lately I've been seeing more and more discussions about the relationship between Black Americans and white Jewish Americans. Back when the Women's March took place in January, there was a lot of discussion of Zionists' place in feminist movements and resistance movements against Trump. And those discussions came up again on the Day Without a Woman boycott. Um, And then after that, you know, Jay-Z released his album 444 recently, which um, had a line in it that many people read as anti-Semitic. You ever wonder why Jewish people own all the property in America? That's how they did it. That also renewed discussions about relationships between African Americans and Jewish Americans. And then the Charlottesville rally is the latest event. Hate no longer hides behind hood. To really bring those conversations to the forefront. So what's each group's role in these discussions? On one side are folks who feel like white Jewish folks are being left out of resistance movements because um, even though they still experience marginalization and are still the victims of hate, religiously motivated hate crimes. And on the other side are folks who 
see white Jewish Americans as sort of taking up space and visibility from people of color and Muslims who are frequently the target of Trump's hateful rhetoric. But this relationship between black communities and Jewish ones goes back for at least a century. Yeah, so African-Americans and Jewish folks first started having the most significant contact with one another during the first Great Migration, which is, was between 1960 and 1930. That's when both groups converged on northern cities, both of them escaping persecution, African-Americans from persecution in the South, and Jewish immigrants from persecution in Eastern Europe. And in those cities, they, because of housing and business discrimination, they often lived in the same neighborhoods and frequented the same businesses. And that's when this um, business owner, customer, landlord-tenant relationship between Jewish folks and Black folks started. And that would lead to a lot of tensions later on down the line. So even though there's this long history of tension, there are a few points in history where Black people and Jewish people built coalitions for civil rights, right? Exactly. During the 1950s and 60s, during the civil rights movement era, a lot of scholars call this time the golden age for Jewish and Black relations in the U.S. So during that time, a lot of um, Jewish folks were very involved in the civil rights movement. There a lot were donors to the NAACP. But recently, more people have done scholarship that kind of cast doubt on this era as a golden time because there were still divisions between northern how northern Jewish folks were involved in the movement versus how southern Jewish folks were. And a lot of folks wondered if had all three of those freedom writers who had been murdered been black, would there have been the same amount of public outcry? You mentioned that there were a lot of Jewish donors to the NAACP in that period. Could you just talk about that a little bit more? Jewish folks have always been involved in the NAACP alongside Black folks, but towards the end of the civil rights movement, Jewish support for the NAACP began to wane because both groups were on opposite sides of the question of affirmative action. Um, there was a big case of affirmative action called Regents of the University of California versus Baki. And in this case, African-American groups came out like full force to support affirmative action programs in colleges. And actually, a few Jewish organizations filed amicus briefs against affirmative action programs in this case. So this marked the first time that Jewish groups and Black groups were against each other in a Supreme Court civil rights case. And those tensions have endured for decades. Right. I think one of the most famous examples of Black and Jewish tensions in the U.S. is the Crown Heights riots in the 90s. Exactly. In 1991, three-day riots broke out after an Orthodox Jewish man hit two Black children with his car, killing one and injuring the other. Angry mobs ran through Crown Heights. Rocks and bottles were thrown, shots fired. It all happened after a car driven by a Hasidic Jew jumped a curb. A seven-year-old Black girl on a bicycle was killed. This was kind of a catalyst for um, a riot that represented a lot of deep-seated tensions in the area. Black residents there often felt like they were being pushed out by Jewish folks who were buying property there. So those tensions ran deep and it all exploded in the riot. But the one good thing that came out of it is the Crown Heights Coalition, which was a group of folks who tried to 
build solidarity and increase communication between the two groups. So what does that solidarity look like today? Well, the Crown Heights Coalition doesn't exist anymore, but today there is an organization called the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding. And they recently wrote an op-ed for The Hill about how Black and Jewish Americans need to come together to fight against the kind of hate that we saw in the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. So it seems like organizations like this exist to bring these two groups together that, despite sometimes converging in parallel histories, still have a lot of tension between each other. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right that there's lingering tensions between these two groups, and those tensions are just going to keep coming up as white supremacists and Nazi groups continue to be more visible in this country. And even though those groups, like African Americans and Jewish Americans, have this shared marginalization and discrimination, there's still tension over this issue of how white privilege separates both groups and their experiences, as well as the issue of Zionism and versus anti-imperialism. That's a really heated debate in social justice circles, right? Zionism versus anti-Zionism? Zionism versus anti-Zionism has come up with the Women's March and the involvement of Palestinian activist Linda Sarsour. It's also come up with Black Lives Matter and its support for BDS, the BDS movement. Um, And it'll only continue to come up as the U.S.'s relationship with Israel is scrutinized throughout Trump's administration. That's it for The Dispatch. You can find us here every Monday through Thursday. To find out how to subscribe, visit theoutline.com slash podcasts, or just search your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Gabby Del Valle. We'll be back on Monday with more stories.